Last week in our class, we began a quick look at the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as we looked at some of the passages where the prophets had foretold the coming of the king and how John the Baptist went through proclaiming, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Jesus followed that same teaching and he told everyone everywhere, repent for the kingdom is is at hand, and he began casting out demons and performing miracles, proving that he was who he claimed to be, the promised king, and his message was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near. We looked at where he made a couple of interesting statements to the Pharisees and to Pilate regarding the kingdom, where he told the Pharisees, the kingdom is not coming with observations. It's not coming with signs where you can look over there and say, there's the kingdom, or there it is, look here, look there. But instead he said, the kingdom is among you, it's in your midst. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my subject would rise to my defense and not allow me to be turned over to you, but my kingdom is from somewhere else. This morning we're going to look at some of the parables that Christ gives, giving us some information about the nature of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, one thing I just want to mention at the forefront here, you may have been under other teaching where a distinction has been made between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Some teachers have made a very big deal of that because their presuppositions require the kingdom of God not to be the same thing as the kingdom of heaven. Well, I want to tell you up front, I think that position is utterly untenable. And I think the scripture clearly uses those terms interchangeably. We primarily find the phrase kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel. And in the other three, we find kingdom of God. Matthew's primary target audience was the Jewish people. And what was the one thing that Jews never did? They never said God. You don't say God's name according to the Jews. And so Matthew writing the message to them in order not to put a stumbling block right at the beginning for them, use the term kingdom of heaven, but not in each and every case. In the 19th chapter of Matthew, his version of the story where Jesus encounters the rich young ruler, at the end of that, he says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There he uses the two, speaking of exactly the same thing. The parables that we will look at today, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus starts off, to what shall we compare the kingdom of heaven? When you look at the other writers, they will say, to what shall we compare the kingdom of God? It's the same thing. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, they are the same. So with that... Uh, brief introduction, let's turn to Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus begins giving us some information about this kingdom. The first parable we're going to look at this morning is commonly called the parable of the tares and the wheat, or maybe the weeds and the wheat, verse 24. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. 
And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then Jesus goes on to a couple of other parables, which we'll come back to. And in verse 36, after uh, he left the multitudes and went to the house, his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. They want to know the meaning of this parable that I just read. So Jesus answers and explains it to them. He says, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the consummation of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, let me stop there. Let's, let's catch up with what Jesus has been saying. He gives this common parable, uh, sowing, agriculture, this was a common occupation in Jesus' day, and he uses this frequently. We know of other parables that include sowing and seeds and so forth. He gives this parable, and the disciples want to know what it means. And so he goes down the list and explains what he meant by this parable. The one who sows the good seed, the Son of Man, Jesus himself. He's saying, I am the one who sows the good seed. The field is the world. Now, last week, a question was raised. I believe uh, Joyce raised it. And part of my response, I said, the kingdom of God is not equal to the church. This is one of the reasons I say that. Because in this parable, the kingdom is bigger than the church. Throughout the church history, theologians have referred back to this parable in terms of the church because we all know that there are people who profess to be Christians who are deceiving us. They are not true believers. The principle of this parable applies to the church in that sense. It's a good illustration for the church, but that's not what Jesus has in mind here. That's reading back into this parable, something that isn't established till later when the organized church comes into a greater visible presence. Jesus himself, at the end here, is going to tell us that these stumbling blocks, these weeds, are pulled out of the kingdom. And he tells us here the field that he's speaking of is the world, not the church. Now we will see in some of the other parables, there is a sense in which Jesus uses the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven as almost coextensive with the church, but the scripture never equates them and says the kingdom of God is the church. So bear that in mind as we go through these parables and that will help you understand them. In this parable especially, the kingdom of God is the whole world. It's the reign, it's the rule of Christ himself. And as he even announced to the disciples after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and in the earth has been given to me. Not just over the church, but Jesus Christ is the king over the entire universe right now. So in that sense, everybody is in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that they are all faithful to the king, but in that sense they're all in the kingdom. For instance, in our country, we have millions and millions and millions of true citizens, Americans, we would call them. We also have, who knows how many, illegal 
immigrants into this country, people who are not citizens and not rightly called Americans. They are in here, and you and I may look out and say, those people are Americans, but you can't tell that for sure, because they may not be. They may be illegal aliens, as we say. So Jesus says here, the field is the world, the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. These are my offspring, if you will, my children. They are subjects of the king. The tares are the sons of the evil one. Do you recall in this study where we've looked at a division between the sons of the king and the sons of the devil? All the way back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam sins, God says directly to Satan, your seed will be at enmity with the seed of the woman. And we went through and showed how Genesis divides at least the first chapters into those who were sons of God, the faithful line, the line of Seth, and those who were sons of the devil, those who disobeyed God. And we see this all the way through Scripture. Here, in the kingdom, we see both those who are seeds of Christ, if you will, his sons, that is, followers of Christ, and sons of the evil one. And we've talked about this in the past, but it's worth reminding you. In Scripture, if someone is your son, it may not mean he is your actual offspring. Sonship and fathership have in their relation whether or not you obey. In other words, whom you obey is the one who is your father. When Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're not sons of Abraham, you're sons of the devil. Of course, they were of the offspring of Abraham. They could trace it all the way back to Abraham. But because you do the deeds of Satan, he's your father. Whereas we, you and I today, Gentiles who are not of the descendancy of Abraham, we are sons of Abraham, the scripture tells us, because we obey Abraham, or we have the faith of Abraham in obeying the king. Do you understand that distinction? That's what Paul, or Paul, Jesus is saying is going on here. In the world, in the kingdom, there are descendants of Jesus, those who follow Jesus, true subjects of the king, and there are descendants of Satan, those whose father is the devil himself. Jesus plants and sows his people, Satan sows his. Why are you a Christian? Because the Son of Man sowed you in his kingdom. The enemy sowed them as the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, the consummation of the age. That's when the harvest will come. So that everyone is maybe on the same page here. The circle represents the whole world, that is, the entire kingdom. And in the kingdom... There are sons of the king, and there are sons of the devil. And it's going to continue this way until the harvest. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks 
and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire in that place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the reign of Christ, which is the entire universe, in this case the field, which is the world, there are going to continue forever to be those who cause others to stumble, those who commit acts of lawlessness, forever until the Lord says it's time to harvest. Then he will take the evil ones, throw them into the lake of fire. And as he says in verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Something just happened in the phrasing there that's interesting. Why does he say at that point they will shine righteously in the kingdom of the Father? Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that after Christ has subjected everything to himself, or rather the Father subjects everything to him, the last thing to be subjected to him is death. And then he will turn the kingdom back over to his Father. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 15 sometime. It seems to me like that's what Jesus is saying. At the end, at the consummation, after the harvest comes, after evil is taken out of the world, then death and Hades, the book of Revelation says, will be cast into the lake of fire. There will be no more death. Then it will be time for Jesus to turn the kingdom back over to the Father and we will live with them forever. God, the Father, and Jesus at his right hand. The main point that I believe Jesus is making here is, in the kingdom, it's not just Christians. Non-believers, sons of the devil, are also in the kingdom until the harvest. We are going to have to endure evildoers and stumbling blocks until Jesus returns. That's the way it is. And just like I use the analogy of illegal immigrants in America... The common belief is that the majority of illegal immigrants in America are Hispanic. Well, suppose the government issued a decree and said, throw all the Hispanics in jail. Well, what would happen? You'd be throwing both illegal immigrants and legal citizens into jail because it's hard to tell them apart. Jesus is saying here at the end of time, then we'll remove all the weeds and then we'll know who were the true sons of the kingdom. All right, well, let's go back and look at his other parables in this chapter to verse 31. It says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Here, this is one of those parables where the kingdom of God is used more regarding the true subjects. This is one of those places where we tend to want to equate it with the church. But if you're going to do that, make sure you're talking about the true church, true believers, not just the organizational church as we think of it. But it's best not to equate the two at all, but just take this for what it's worth. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven is going to start off very, very small, like a mustard seed, the tiniest seed in the garden, he says. But when it reaches maturity, when it's full grown, it's going to be a a big tree. Now put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, Jewish disciples. 
that would be strange to your ears. The promises in the prophets were that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to enact this huge tramping of all the enemies, wipe them out, lead with righteousness, and all the evildoers would be cast out of the kingdom. The apocalyptic writings, 60 years before Christ, and they're crying out saying, Lord, send the Son of David to come and and remove all these enemies and lead in righteousness. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, let me tell you what the kingdom's going to be like. Little bitty at the beginning. Now, that would have been very strange. They'd have been thinking, how can that be? All the prophecies say that the Messiah is going to come and lead this, this great triumphant war. And you're telling us it's going to start off a little bitty and then grow? Look at the next one. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leaven. How much is a peck? It's the amount of pickled peppers that Peter Piper picked, right? <laughs> you might know how much a peck is. 16 pounds? Fourth of a bushel? Anybody else want to offer a, an, an answer? Half a bushel? Hmm. Peck's different where she comes from. You should go there. Some of you know far more about how leaven works than I do, but the imagery is pretty clear. You put just a little bit in the dough, and it will work its way through the entire dough. Jesus is saying here the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, you just put a little bit in. Gradually, over time, it will permeate the entire lump of dough. And again, this would have brought the same strange thinking into the minds of the disciples. Wait a minute, I thought, I was told in Sunday school, that the Messiah was going to come and just take over. And what you're saying is, it's going to start off as just this little bitty insignificant something, And it's going to take a long time to work its way throughout. That's what Jesus is saying. And look at what has happened in the last 2,000 years. A little band of men, 12 disciples. And how many millions of Christians have there been in the last 2,000 years? The little mustard seed has blossomed into this huge tree. Or to use the other illustration, very few of all the population at the time of Christ were followers of Christ. But now, there are Christians of almost every tribe, tongue, and nation. We still have some places where the the leaven is not filled into. That's why we are sending missionaries. But to the disciples, this would have been revolutionary because it goes against everything they understood about the kingdom of heaven. They were expecting the kingdom to come with might, with strength, with dominance, A large majority of Christians are still waiting for the kingdom to come with might and strength and dominance when Jesus tells us what it's going to be like. We're on the growth end. The leaven has has permeated. The tree has grown. I don't know how close we are to the the harvest. It may be 100,000 years away. But Jesus' parable still stands true because it started small and it has grown large. Going on to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two parables basically are teaching the same thing. 
He's saying to his disciples, the kingdom of heaven is worth everything. It's so valuable that it's like a man who comes along and he finds this treasure in a field and he doesn't take the treasure because that would be stealing. It's not his field. But he goes and he spends every dime he has to buy the field and the treasure becomes his. Or another person who's in the market for fine pearls and he finds the biggest pearl in the world. The grand diamond. And he, I'm changing my metaphor. In the, just, just for, just for illustration. And he sells everything that he has to buy that one pearl, which is not a diamond. Now again, this would have seemed strange to the ears of the disciples. How can he even be talking about something that's hidden, something that almost, it appears as though these, the guys in these illustrations are just sort of stumbling upon? Isn't the kingdom going to come in glory? How could you miss it? Because it's not the type of kingdom the Jews were looking for. It's better. And it's worth everything. Remember Jesus said, seek first his kingdom. It's worth giving up everything. And he makes this claim over and over again. A man who begins pushing the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom. You've got to forsake it all. The guy comes to him and says, Lord, let me go bury my dead father, and then I'll join you. And he says, let the, bed bury their, let the dead bury their own. That's a pretty strong call. He tells the people over and over again, you have to abandon your families, you have to abandon your friends, give it all up for the sake of the kingdom. That especially had impact on the Jews, because the Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah were disowned by their family members. And it would cost them everything. Because for the Jewish father whose son believed in Jesus when the father didn't, they were as good as dead in the eyes of the father. And Jesus says, you cannot continue to be a Jew who rejects me and follow me. You give it all up. If your fathers hate you, if your brothers and sisters and your mother and your children, if everybody hates you for my sake, I'm worth it. The kingdom of heaven is worth it. Give it all up. It's not the kingdom you're expecting. It's better. All right, let's look at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth similar to the wheat and the tares. The kingdom of heaven is like a big net where fishermen just catch everything, good and bad and fish alike. They will stay in the net until the consummation of the age. And then the bad fish will be thrown out. And the good fish will be eaten. No, just kidding. (laughs) The good fish will, will sprout up into men and women and reign with Christ forever and ever. Evolution, that's right. That's right. All right, now go back to the beginning of chapter 13. This is a parable with which we are all familiar, no doubt. It's taught a lot. The parable of the sower, the four different types of ground. I will uh, start reading in verse 1. On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. A great multitude gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down. 
And the whole multitude was standing on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and he sowed, and some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell upon the rocky places, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Skipping now to verse 18, we have the explanation. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom the seed was sown in rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Pretty simple meeting. Jesus gives four different types of soil. He says the word is proclaimed, the word of the kingdom is proclaimed, and many people right away say, yeah, that's good, that's it, I want in. But different things come up, and they back out of their initial decision. But if it's good soil that the seed hits, that will blossom into a fruit-bearing plant. Because I think you're familiar enough with that, I want to go back and look at the portion that I skipped because it's very pertinent to what the overall theme of this class is about. Back in verse 10, he had just told this parable, hadn't explained it yet, and the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Now, here's the response that you expect. I speak to them in parables because parables are good illustrations to help people understand. We use them all the time. Sometimes they're not so good, like when I compare a pearl to a diamond. But on other occasions, they're very helpful. Literally, parabole means to throw alongside. It's a story that's tossed alongside your point so that someone can understand what you're getting at. But that's not the answer that Jesus gives. Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. He shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, and in their case the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive, for the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should return, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. If you go back and look at that statement from Isaiah in its original context, it's right after the awesome call of Isaiah. 
where he sees the vision of the Lord on his throne. And he is cut to his heart and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And God sends the angel with a hot coal and burns his lips. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Because God had said, who will go for us? And he says, this is the message that you shall take to them. Just listen to this. Here I am, send me. And he said, go tell this people. This is Isaiah the prophet. He's being sent to the people of Israel. Tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? Do you realize the message Isaiah has been given here? Go tell these people, you're going to hear things, but you will not understand. And Isaiah says, how long do I have to preach that message? They're not going to like it. The Lord said, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. This was a prophecy of judgment on the people of Israel. And when the disciples come to Jesus and say, why are you telling all these people these things in parables? Jesus says, so that they won't understand. The point is, God is judging the Jewish people. He has told them over and over and over again, if you don't keep my commandments, here's the penalty. Now he brought almost complete devastation upon them with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But he preserved a remnant. Why? To bring the Messiah. Now the Messiah has come, as we're going to see, that's the end for the Jews. And Jesus is now pronouncing God's judgment upon them. This is the prophecy of the Isaiah. You all are the special generation who get to be blinded and deafened so that you can't hear the truth. Some do. The vast majority end up saying, crucify him, crucify him. It's a statement of judgment. All right, chapter 19. Well, in the interest of time, let's skip to chapter 21. We're familiar with the triumphal entry story. The masses look at Christ as the Messiah, and they send him into town, throw down the palm branches, make a big deal. Behold, the King of David. He is here. And they're ready for the entrance of the kingdom that God has promised to Israel in all its might. People are applauding, they're they're cheering, and they're calling this man the promised one. The Pharisees are not happy about this. The people, the masses, are thinking that this man, Jesus, is really the king. So they come to him questioning his authority, and they try to trick him into saying something blasphemous so that they can persuade the masses that he's not the true Messiah and kill him. And, of course, they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus, the greatest debater of all time, never, ever, ever, ever take Jesus on. (laughs) Comes back to them, of course, and says, I'll answer your question, but first you answer me this. John the Baptist, was he from God or not? And he tricks them because either way they're stuck. Any answer they would give to that question would ruin their reputation. They say, we don't know. That's, That's the best answer they have. That's the smartest, the safest answer. 
Jesus says at the end in, in verse 27, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he just goes right after them. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir. But he did not go. And he came to the second and said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. Yet afterward regretted it, and he went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the latter. They're not idiots. They understand. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. Jesus gets right and hits them where it hurts as badly as anything else. I'm telling you something, Pharisees. Prostitutes, the dregs of society, tax collectors, in their day it didn't get any worse. Those two groups, the bottom of the bottom as far as sinners, Jesus says they are going to enter the kingdom of heaven and you are not. Listen to another parable, Jesus says, just in case you haven't gathered the true meaning here. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it to vine growers and went on a journey. Somebody tell me where this comes from. Isaiah, we've already gone over this. This is the parable that God gives to Isaiah. When he's pronouncing doom upon Israel, he says, here's, here's the story. A man plants his vineyard and he puts it in the most perfect place on the hill where the sun hits it just right. And he puts it on good soil and he tends it daily. And he goes to the vineyard when it's time and he doesn't find any fruit on it. He says, I'm going to tear it up. I'm going to throw it out. It's not bearing any fruit. It bears wild grapes. You can't eat those. You can't make good wine out of them. Jesus is appealing back to that parable and quoting it word for word so there's no mistake in their mind what he's saying. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. So Jesus is now adding on his version of the story. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And the Pharisees utter the words of their own judgment. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. The Pharisees understood. It's simple. No one treats the son that way. You treat the son of the owner that way, he's going to kick you out, he's going to destroy you, he's going to find somebody else to get the vineyard to. Jesus said, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? That became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore, I say to you, he's not giving them any room to miss this. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. The kingdom of God has been taken away from the Jews. They got it. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parables, they understood that he was speaking about them, and when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because they held him as a prophet. That was the last straw. Now they're going to kill him. But they wouldn't do it then because it wouldn't have worked. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Learn that well, folks. We're going to come back to that. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out to the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there was a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. The king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's a powerful end of this parable, which we're not going to take the time to go through. But it's very important to understand that many are invited to the wedding feast of God, but not all who are invited are chosen. But the point I want you to see here is those who were originally invited were not worthy, and they were rejected, and the king <coughs> sent his armies and destroyed them. One more place, because our time is up. Chapter Luke. Chapter Luke. Chapter Luke um, 13. Let's back up to verse 22. He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? He said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourselves cast out. And they will come from east and west and north and south and recline in the kingdom of God. Who are the people from the east and the north and the west and the south? 
the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Everywhere else, there will be people sitting there at the table that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. You Jews are not going to be there. The dogs, the Gentiles, are going to be there. That's why they'll be gnashing their teeth. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Just at that time, some Pharisees came up saying to him, Go away and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I may reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Now listen to this lament. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. I hope you're getting this picture, and I hope you see how this directly relates to our subject matter. Promise fulfillment. Continuity, discontinuity. God promised the king would come. The king has come. The kingdom has come. That's continuity. God has taken the kingdom from the Jews. And it's not going back, folks. This does not excuse anti-Semitism. It's not okay to treat the Jews any differently than it's okay to treat anybody else. There's still people created in God's image. But the kingdom of God does not belong to the Jews. It belongs to the followers of Christ. Next week, we are going to look at how Daniel prophesied this. Then we will look at how Jesus himself in Matthew prophesied the utter destruction of Jerusalem. And we will see that that took place exactly as Jesus said it would. Their house was left to them desolate.